Aaron, would you believe that this is our 20th road trip? I can't get over that. I mean, we just started last week. It feels like, no, just kidding. 20. I mean, that's, that's, and, and I was just thinking today, Tony, we've been going every week. We go on a road trip every single week. We do. And you know, last week we took the week off and I have to tell you, I really missed it. I really, really missed it. Well, we didn't really take it off. We recorded it before and then was, it threw it in when we had to, but you know what? Here's the thing. I missed it too, but I also, I, it doesn't feel like 20 to me because I look forward to every road trip we do. Oh, me too. I was uh, excited about this one, especially, you know, number 20, that's a big milestone and uh, just fantastic that uh, we're still going strong and getting stronger, right? I was just, I was going to say, you know, 120 more to go. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. We'll see. Uh, we'll see where we go. But uh, I was mentioning in my studio here, you know that I'm in the process of redoing my studio. Um, Which looks great, by the way. Well, it's starting, but uh, I'm going to put that big world map that I have in every every destination we visit on this show. I'll put a push pin in, and I'd like to see, you know, over the years as we do this, where we go. It's pretty exciting. And I, I think we need to post that on Facebook. Well, yeah, I will, for sure. Yeah. Okay, good. I figured you would, but, you know, I just wanted to kind of throw in my two cents worth. <laughs> Well, shall we hit the road? We shall hit the road, sir. All right, let's go. Maps? Check. Snacks? Double check. Tunes? Check. I'm Tony Stewart. I'm Aaron Badgley. And we are cruising the rock and roll highway in our way back music machine. Are you ready, my friend? I sure am. I have the feeling this is going to be the start of a great adventure. Kind of a magical mystery tour. Somehow I knew you were going to say that. Well, you know, uh, there's one event this week in rock and roll history that looms large, and um, we have to visit that one. It is not a, a happy moment, but it's an important moment. So do you want to punch it in for... August 16th, 1977. I'm sure people can guess where we're headed, but uh, let's do it. Let's go to Memphis, August 16th, 1977. I don't really want to go there, but I mean, I do want to go to Memphis. I don't want to visit this time period, but it's in. Yeah, let's go. Elvis Presley, the Mississippi boy whose country rock guitar and gyrating hits turned the music industry inside out in the mid-1950s, died this afternoon in his adopted hometown, Memphis. The popular singer apparently collapsed at his home in South Memphis and was transported to Baptist Hospital by fire department ambulance. No cause of death has been announced, but a hospital spokesman earlier said Presley had suffered respiratory distress. A later report, confirmed through the local civil defense office, revealed that Presley was dead on arrival. Presley, known as the king of rock, had many fans here in his hometown. Most of them at this point expressed shock and even disbelief. But there's no doubt the city has lost one of its all-time favorite sons. This is Dan Osborne for CBS News, Memphis. You know, um, I love music, Tony. I don't think that comes as a surprise to you, and I know you do too. And one of the times I identified most with American Pie was within the song he talks about delivering the papers. Um, and I was I had a paper route uh, in 1977, Toronto Star, and I re- I'll never forget the headlines, The King's Dead. And... Uh, it stayed with me forever, you know. That was, um, I grew up as an Elvis fan. My mom loved Elvis. And uh, Elvis was on in our house all the time. Movies, if it was on TV, 
uh, Elvis's Golden Records, that album. I can see it in my head right now. So, yeah, I remember this day vividly. How about you? Well, I remember it. I was only eight years old, but I remember just feeling that this was important, you know. Uh, I was aware of Elvis, certainly, at eight years old, but, you know, like most eight-year-old kids, uh, wasn't into music like I would be a few years later, but I recognized the importance of this. I remember my folks being upset, and I, well, just about everybody I knew was in shock. And, uh, of course, we're talking about Elvis's passing. August 16th, 1977, he was found dead in his bathroom at Graceland and only 42 years of 42. age. You know, I, I can't get over that. And what a loss and what a life, you know, to be honest. Well, and, and you know, I know this is this is maybe overused a lot, but he was coming back on his album at that time. He just put an album out called Moody Blue. And it was a great album. And, uh, you know, it, it looked like he was kind of getting his, his act together and he was kind of, the 70s were not unkind to him. He put out some fine music from oh, 1970, don't you think? He absolutely did. In fact, I've, I've long insisted that that uh, brilliant uh, Aloha from Hawaii concert, that was the first big satellite televised concert, right? Um, that is absolutely Elvis at the peak of his powers, in my opinion. I, I actually think in that show that he's singing better than he did 10 years earlier. Mm-hmm. Well, I do too. I think he got the he got hungry again in a really weird way. Um, that he wanted to, I think he wanted to prove that he was still relevant in the seventies because I think a lot of people saw him as a fifties icon even in the seventies. Um, but he had hits in the seventies. I, I remember burning and everyone at home. Just Tony was younger than me in nineteen seventy seven, and Tony's still younger than me. So I just want to put that on the table. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> But I remember when I was a kid, there was back-to-back hits with, um, you know, Burning Love, Don't Cry Daddy. I mean, he was still on the charts. They were still being played on the radio. So I, I, I'm going to be the one person to stand up and say he was still a viable artist uh, at, the, at the time of his passing. Oh, I agree. He was still relevant for sure. And uh, amazing that he was able to sing and perform despite his addiction problems and his health troubles you know he he was not well when he died and and um well they didn't know that he had an enlarged heart no his heart was enlarged and his intestine was too i mean he he also suffered i mean not to get gross or anything but from severe severe constipation and Mm -hmm. and uh, that all contributed to his passing right and the amount of uh substances in his system as well it, it it's incredible uh what he was able to do despite the demons that he had you know well and, and he had i mean you know when you read the book and unfortunately i i gotta say this too i just read two really good books about elvis very honest very well-written books but there was a lot of garbage that came out after his death people were writing books left right and center that were really unkind I, they're not. They weren't so much. I'm going to learn something. It was like let's pick at this corpse, and that's what. And they did the same thing when John passed away. Well, yeah, there was it that just, ridiculous book that came out when John passed away too. I can't remember the author, but there was one. That, oh, Albert Goldman. Who yes, also yes. wrote a book about. He also wrote a book about Elvis. Yeah, I mean ridiculous. And Sinatra. He wrote. He wrote. He waited till all three of them passed, and then he wrote these vicious attacks on them. And you're thinking, Albert, what's wrong with you? Oh, exactly. <laughs> 
But um, do you have a favorite Elvis moment? I have so many. I, I mean, you know, for me, it was the Aloha concert because I remember actually watching it on television with my mom. Um, I have so many, you know, like I, I remember going to the drive-in after he passed away and they had a, a retrospective of his films, I guess you could say. And one of them showed, one of the one of the ones they showed was a film called Tickle Me, which is still a favorite of mine. I think maybe because I saw it at the drive-in just after he passed away. Um, and I really love his comeback special. Oh, me Those, too. Me too. I love that. I mean, it's just, he, you can see the sheer joy on his face as he's singing, right? Oh, absolutely. And um, I, for me, the the Aloha concert and also the comeback special would be the two, just because he was so nervous before that comeback special in '68, and it had been a while, years since he had performed because he had been focusing on his movie career and. Uh, you know, like a teenager again, right? Nervous, and the the crowd is right there, ten feet from him. It is a yeah. special, special moment. And I, I, you know, I, yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, and the Aloha uh, from Hawaii concert. My highlight from that. Well, uh, you know this because we've talked about this many times. I know where you're going. Yeah, yeah the American trilogy, and and you know what I like the most. Uh, is the way that his backup singers watch the video from the American trilogy and his backup singers are sitting down and watch uh, when he starts up the admiration on their faces when he's singing this slow beginning. And uh, it gets me every time. I, I'm, I almost tear up every time when I watch that. Yeah, it's, 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 it's true, you know, and, and, uh, that's the stuff that should be talked about as opposed to his, you know, as you put it, his demons, his drug addiction. I mean, he put out 31 movies. They weren't cinematic classics, but they were fun. They were what they were. They, they achieved what they set out to do. You know, I, I dare anyone to watch a movie like Jailhouse Rock and not smile at that dance sequence. Watching him dance in that Jailhouse Rock sequence. I just watched it on TV last week. It's phenomenal. And, he was really good. And he choreographed that himself, didn't he, I believe? He did indeed. And it's you watch that, you think, wow, that was, I mean, Michael Jackson, eat your heart out. I mean, it oh, was good. For sure. And, you know, I, like I said, when I'm teaching, um, I always want to make sure that kids understand the importance of Elvis, right? Because this generation, oh, wasn't he the fat guy that, that died mm -hmm. in his bathroom, uh, died on the toilet, right? And, and it's really sad that for a new generation that's all they think about with Elvis right and and uh, we've got to keep the memory of that guy alive in my opinion because he was so important in the development of this music and he was the bridge right between rhythm and blues and rock and roll and no Elvis no rock and roll I don't think and, and, and uh, so two things come to mind one is at one time he was seen as very dangerous he was kind of punk rock you know of his era without Elvis no Beatles Right, John Lennon said before Elvis there was nothing. I mean, he's you know not completely correct, but I know what he's saying. McCartney, um, Robert Plant, Led Zeppelin, they all pay tribute to this man. And I think that David Bowie even. Bowie talked about one of his highlights is when he was touring Ziggy was going to see Elvis at Madison Square Garden. Well, you know, when I went to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland, I spent more time, I mean, I spent a lot of time in the Beatles section, obviously, but I spent the most time in the Elvis section, and that really spoke to me. But what I loved was listening to other people describe working with him and just how 
perfect his voice was, how the consummate professional when he sang, you know? Yeah, I think he tackled everything professionally. I don't think he, you know, I don't think he would ever put anything out that he, and I, I sometimes wonder how he would have felt about some of the stuff that came out after his passing because, as with anybody, they, they start going through the archives and putting things out. There's a there's a band called Gentle Giant who I like, and and they've been they've been split up since the seventy or eighties, and their company kept putting stuff out, and and the, they asked the band to put together a compilation, and they said, well, let's just call it Scraping the Bottom of the Barrel. <laughs> <laughs> I think that that kind of epitomized what happened with Elvis, unfortunately. Again, was that there was a lot of stuff that came out that was perhaps best left on the shelf, and he would have said that. I mean, he, but the stuff he released, I I enjoy. I still enjoy. I think there's power in it, and, and the trilogy, for example, uh, you know, it, it's a very moving piece of art. Oh, art, absolutely. So his first number one was Heartbreak Hotel, but that, you know, the records that he holds, right? He still holds the records, doesn't he, for the uh, Hot yep. 100 chart? What? Yep. Are, what is it? 154. Yeah, I mean, come on, 154 singles. Now again, let's remember something. This is before streaming, so that meant that people had to go out and physically buy these records. Yeah. So, you know, when you have 154 songs chart in the top 100 over a period of years, that is nothing to not acknowledge. That's a huge, huge, huge accomplishment, right? Well, absolutely. Uh, the first rock and roll artist to be honored uh, with a stamp by the U.S. Postal Service. Yep. I mean, so many accolades. You know, member of the of all kinds of different. Uh, halls of fame not just the rock and roll hall of fame he's in the country hall of fame and in fact i've seen his plaque at the country hall of fame and his uh, his little write-up um because he loved country music as well and he loved gospel music he's in the gospel music hall of fame i mean he he did it all listen suspicious minds has his music he recorded in, uh in, in nashville suspicious minds in the ghetto all those songs i love those sessions they're fantastic they're what's it called kentucky rain yes uh, written by Mac Davis, actually, um, he was. It's. 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 You're absolutely right. And then you look at the fact that even after he passed away, he had you know another seven hits <laughs> on the country charts, right? Yeah, from, that's amazing. From, and and the fact that when they opened up Graceland to the public, which I think was a brilliant idea, they have over half a million visitor, visitors annually, which is, I find this statistic amazing. It's the second most visited home in the United States, second to the White House. Yeah, that's amazing, isn't it? Well, I mean, we, we're going to go there someday, man. We got to. Oh, you can count on it. <laughs> count on it. Yes, I, we are, for sure. So uh, what was on the charts that week? Uh, I'm, I'm sure there must have been great charts because 77 uh, was a pretty neat period. Uh, well, they were good. <laughs> Number six was an album that I, I was never a fan of this band, Tony, I'll be honest. Uh, Kiss, but their, uh, but their classic album, Love Gun. Yeah, you know what? I never never was a Kiss fan either. I mean, having said that, there's a new documentary that is quite good. I'm not a fan of them, but it's a good documentary. I've heard that. A friend of mine told me that too. Yeah, it's quite good. Peter Frampton was at number four with his follow up to his huge Frampton Comes Alive album, album called I'm in You. Number three was um, my wife's happy here, Barbara Streisand and Superman. Number two was Crosby, Stills, and Nash with CSN, which makes me laugh because it's probably their second album in 30 years. Uh, <laughs> and number one was, of course, the eternal number one, which seemed to be number one for about five decades. Yeah. Um, Fleetwood Mac, of course, I'm talking about rumors. Uh, 
Now, Elvis, as I mentioned, his album had just entered the charts. It was already, before he passed away, as the number 26 with Moody Blue. And that would open, of course, would go top 10, and, you know, because of the people buying it after he passed away. And just as a side note, the Beatles actually had three albums in the top uh, 200 that week with Live at the Hollywood Bowl, Live at the Star Club, and the Beatles 67 to 70. I have to get them in once in a while. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, I love uh, those two album covers, right? Uh, the first one was at 63 to 66 and then 67 to 70 where they, they show them on the staircase uh, and yeah. how they've changed that. It's classic. Do you know, you know what, you know why they did that, right? Uh, no. Well, because their first, the, the, the first, the young picture was the cover of their first British album. And when they did the album, let it be, they were going to call it get back. And they wanted to do it exactly the same as their first album, which of course got dished because the album's called let it be, not get back. And um, so that was so they thought we have this great photo. Let's use it on this compilation, and it worked beautifully, didn't it? Oh yeah, it was great. Well, uh, it's been great uh, visiting Memphis uh, and talking about Elvis. But uh, shall we uh, move ahead? I think we should go to August seventeenth, nineteen. Well, we're moving back actually about to eighteen years. August seventeenth, nineteen fifty nine. This is an important one for jazz musicians everywhere, but this uh, had an impact on the rock and roll world as well. So do you want to punch that in? I do. I do indeed. Here we go. Ready? All right, let's go. Here we are back in the Big Apple. It is August 17th, 1959. And we're here to talk about what is widely considered the greatest jazz album of all time, certainly the most influential and of course, I'm talking about Miles Davis's classic, Kind of Blue, was released on this day in 1959. And I have to tell you, Aaron, that it remains such an influence for jazz musicians all over the world. I mean, not only jazz musicians, of course, it influenced rock and roll as well. Uh, but this album was a game changer in so many ways. And... Uh, this is the day that it was released, and it's one of those albums that mo- you know most musicians say, "Okay, what's your desert album, desert island uh, jazz album?" And they'll say, "Kind of Blue" by Miles Davis. And uh, I can listen to this album a thousand times and learn something new every time I hear it. It is absolutely brilliant. Well, and he sadly he dismissed it though by the eighties, right? He's kind of I, I found a little interview where he said. So so what of Kind of Blue? They were done in that era, the right hour, the right day. It happened, it's over. When I used to play with Bill Evans and all those different modes uh, and sub- substitute chords, we had the energy then and we liked it, but I have no feeling for it anymore. I like this. It's more like warmed over turkey. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you know, Miles was that kind of guy, right? He didn't stop. He, he was, in my opinion, gr- uh, jazz's greatest innovator, um, and he didn't stop. He just kept moving on. I mean, he uh, did stuff later on. You know, look at the impact that an album like Bitches Brew had on the rock and roll world, right? And uh, so he just kept changing, changing, changing. And he was so influential that if Miles changed, I mean, everybody changed, right? It was, uh, you know, he, the the Birth of the Cool, that was another great album yeah. that Huge. that led the jazz world out of bebop thankfully uh can you tell that i'm not the biggest bebop fan i just no I, i'm not picking that up at all well you know and and bebop unfortunately was you know a, a trend in jazz where musicians showed off 
just what kind of chops they have. And it kind of ruined it for the listener, in my opinion. Now, there are people who will disagree with me, but uh, I find that kind of playing a little bit self-indulgent. It's the same as when I hear bands doing, you know, shredding guitars for 20 minutes, taking a solo, right? Like, um, but I appreciate the, uh, the artistry, the, the technique required to do that, but not great from a listener's point of view. And I think, uh, Miles recognized that and changed the game and then changed it again with kind of blue. He gave his musicians very little to work with. He gave them some outlines, but he wanted it improvisatory on purpose right so they it wasn't just, really rehearsed was it no he just went in with some sketches and they did it and there's some great footages uh, uh footage of recording this and and miles man you know i i talk about him on bernard fraser's uh podcast the essence of cool but uh he, this guy was you know the essence of cool was miles davis i mean just he could shred you with a look you know if he was unhappy with you um and and he would just look at you if he was happy. I mean, people, the the impact that he had on people was unbelievable. Well, I mean, you, you when I was doing some research, Richard Wright of Pink Floyd credits this album for the basis of the song Breathe on Dark Side of the Moon. And Dwayne Allman, he cites the album for the Allman Brothers, especially in a song called In Memory of Elizabeth Reed, in terms of the chord progression and the, uh, the music, right? So here's who you wouldn't think jazz musician would influence pink floyd and yet he did no absolutely i I mean it is the one album right that even if uh, you're not a jazz aficionado you you probably know this album uh rick and i play uh quite a few songs from this album and uh miles is a huge influence on our style of music as well you know we we really agree with his letting music breathe you know and and when you're soloing letting the music breathe and not filling every microsecond with uh with riffs that you've learned you know mm-hmm. just uh, uh interesting guy he had his demons for sure miles was far from a perfect uh human being but but an, a game changer in every way well, well rolling stone in 2003 ranked it as the 12th most you know greatest album of all time and they're the 2003 version of their 500 greatest albums of all time. And I mean, it's, it, it's, it's the best selling jazz record of all time in 2019. It was certified five times platinum, which yeah. means 5 million copies, which, okay. Is no thriller, but for a jazz album. Well, yeah. 5 million copies. is quite a bit, you know, because if you like the statistics for jazz albums are, they sell so few copies, uh, compared to a lot of other genres, right? It, it is, uh, you know, I, I hope uh, jazz makes it and I hope it survives, but uh, it's way down there in terms of sales, you know? Well, I think it's still, it still has its loyal followers, and I think that they're still kind of... Um, I think it's going to survive. I think it might survive on a different level. But, I mean, I don't... I, the one thing I like about jazz fans is that they're not really streaming. They're buying. When I was... Uh, recently on Record Store Day, uh, the majority were clearly of jazz records. So that says something, right? Well, absolutely. And I'm looking for a, a copy. I don't have a copy of Kind of Blue. So uh, well, Christmas I, is coming, Tony. Christmas well, that's is right. Coming. So I've, I've got to get a copy of that. <laughs> you never know what, you know, 
uh, your co-host Santa will do. <laughs> I, I was I was shocked to see that was his thirtieth album. Uh, he was prolific. Yeah, by fifty nine, thirtieth. I mean, he he just never stopped, and um, he had, like I said, he had his demons and he and he had his struggles and he his substance abuse, of course, was the downfall of many uh, musicians in that period, and he. Uh, for a while he wasn't able to play and then he had to get back on the horse and uh, and he did which is is also impressive but uh, do you ever hear about uh, the trouble that he had in harlem you know he's standing outside the club and and got beat by the police i, I, I did I, i've read about that which is just horrific right right here's the, the you know at that time the greatest jazz musician in the world right this guy everybody knows who this guy is and he gets uh, clubbed by a beat cop uh, because he's standing outside a nightclub having a smoke, and you know the uh, cop wanted him to move, and he and he said no, like I, I'm well within my rights to stand here, and and sure enough, ended up getting beat up, by a horrible. Yeah, it's just tra- it's just tragedy what these people had to endure, you know. Well, yeah, and he talked about uh, even driving his Ferrari, I think it was a Ferrari that he had, but, uh, you know, getting pulled over all the time as a, as a black man driving a Ferrari, yeah. right? It was, yeah, 100%. Uh, but uh, incredible musician and uh, left a legacy that is going to last forever, in my opinion. But uh, what was, uh, what did you pick for the charts for this, uh, for the well, August 17th, 59? And I just want to say too, that, you know, he's, he was, he's recorded with people like Joni Mitchell and, and uh, Prince and, you too. You're right. He's gonna he's gonna survive this. Trust me. Um, so I looked at the charts in 1950. I looked at the albums, and what's interesting, Tony, is that in '59, the charts were split between there was the top stereophonic albums and the top mono albums. So I, tr- I went with the top stereophonic albums. And number five was Henry Mancini's Peter Gunn. Number four was the Kingston Trio. Kingston Trio at large. Martin Denny with the Exotica Volume One. I love this. Number two is the RCA Symphony Orchestra, Rogers, Victory at Sea, Volume 2. And number one, <laughs> no, number one, the eternal classic, South Pacific soundtrack. But what was interesting is when you look at the mono charts, the classical album was way down to 13, and Johnny Mathis was at number three, and Case and Trio were actually at number one, which speaks about who were, bu- I guess, who was buying what, right? But no, cool anyways. Yeah, it's very cool. Well, you know what? We're going to stay on August 17th, but we're going to jump ahead 10 years to Bethel, New York. Uh, you ready to go? I've got lots of, Well, you know, while we're here in New York, if we could just... Nathan's... Oh, no, wait. It's 59. They don't have the veggie dog yet. Never mind. Well, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, 10 years ahead. So here we are, Bethel, New York, for, I, I don't even need to say what we're here for, 1969, uh, three days of peace, love, and music here at Woodstock Festival. Uh, I mean, who, you know, everyone played, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, The Who, Hendrix, 10 years after. 186,000 tickets have been sold, but there was way more than that at the concert. Well, there were about 400,000, weren't there? Yeah, exactly. Um yeah, and it actually went kind of to the Monday. It's supposed to end Sunday night, but I like the fact that when they organized the concert, they, they told the authorities in Bethel, "Look, 
no more than 50,000 are coming. (laughs) 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 It is incredible. And looking back at the footage, right, of the traffic and the crowds and, and, um, Amazing. The and garbage. Did you, have you seen the garbage scene when they're flying the helicopter over the garbage? Of just yeah, it's astounding. And um, I remember when we uh, were doing our old podcast and we did the Billy Billy Joel uh, show and you had told me that uh, Billy Joel had gone to Woodstock and left because the bathrooms were so bad or something, right? Like, Oh, they were terrible. I mean, you know, this was, this was not glamping. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I loved what... John Fogarty from CCR who performed there, and then you know the story is that they were supposed to they were supposed to go on at eleven o'clock at night, but the Grateful Dead were on before them, and, and the Grateful Dead I guess got into the groove, <laughs> and did uh, probably three songs that lasted forty five minutes each, um, but they got on you know with three in the morning, and John Fogarty says we were ready to rock out, and we waited. It was our turn. There were half a million people asleep. These people were out. It was sort of like a painting on the Dante of a Dante scene. Just bodies from hell all intertwined <laughs> and asleep, <laughs> covered with mud. And this is the moment I will never forget as long as I live. A quarter of a mile away in the darkness on the other edge of this bowl, there was a guy flicking his bick, and I could hear him saying, don't worry about it, John, we're here with you. Oh, my gosh, what a class. story. That is a great I, story. <laughs> I, I, I mean, that, that whole concert, I've never been to a festival. I'm going to full disclosure here. I, I, I went to... A concert of the CNE and it lasted all day. It started in the morning, and it, it was the Who headlined this heart, um, Jay Giles band, and, and and for some bizarre reason, Nash Slash opened the show. But I've never been. I never did a festival like this. Have you ever done that? Uh, not really. Not on this scale. I've done a few smaller festivals, but but certainly nothing on this scale. Um, I can't imagine. I don't. Yeah, I don't know if I'd be able to do that. To be honest, you know. Um, Maybe back, you know, back in '69, still, you know, the uh, the summer of love era, maybe. But uh, boy, that that must have been something else. Um, you know, looking at some of the stats, though, right? There were oh, the stats. Are, okay, one of them kind of made me laugh. I'm sorry. Yeah, there four. Well, 742 drug overdoses. So that's yeah, kinda, that didn't make me laugh. No, that, that wasn't didn't. What it was. No, what was the one that made you laugh? The car that caught fire. <laughs> Car that caught fire in traffic. I just, I, I could just picture that because those cars went over heat, right? Oh yeah. And you're in August, and you're probably got the car ready for a good half an hour, can't move, and it just poof. Oh. <laughs> no one got hurt for that one. But that's incredible, isn't it? But uh, yeah. two people died though during the show. They did, and one of them was uh, insulin usage, of course, and and another uh, was a tractor ran over somebody who was sleeping. That's yeah. That's crazy. I, how did that even happen? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe some kind of substance abuse involved, or I, I don't know. It has to be. I don't know. It's just. It's just that, that was a weird one. But uh, and there's a couple of babies born, right? Yes, I believe so. And uh, I wonder. You know that it's just. I I don't think we'll ever have anything like Woodstock again, right? I I think too many rules and regulations nowadays, and we live in a much more litigious society. And I, I don't think it could happen again. I think they try to recreate, and I know that they've done the 40th anniversary of Woodstock, and they did the 50th anniversary of Woodstock, and it's, you can't, you know, you can't reheat a souffle. And and what I mean is that it 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 turned out bigger than they anticipated. It wasn't planned. So when things aren't planned, you have to just kind of admire them for that moment. You can't try to replicate them because it won't work. You know. 
Oh, exactly. And I mean, this was when uh, Jimi Hendrix absolutely cemented his greatness, right? Uh, at this at Woodstock, you know, and, and uh, I remember in high school, uh, a lot of Jimi Hendrix fans and, and uh, they always talked about Woodstock, right? But uh, he was uh, the highest paid entertainer in the world at that time, wasn't he? For, for a single show. Yeah, and I, I think I would probably give everything I own to be at the show where Shanana and Ned Hendricks. Yeah. <laughs> That's something else, isn't it? Do people remember Shanana? Well, I do. I remember. Because of the TV show. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. But, but uh, I don't think I, I, don't, I don't know. It's, it's, it, you're, you're so right, Tony. This could never happen like that. Um, and. I don't know. I mean, I've, I've heard a lot of stuff. I've heard the band. Um, they didn't like their performance at all. CCR hated their performance. Uh, a lot of people weren't too keen on how they played because I think it was just... I mean, Joni Mitchell couldn't even get there. She tried, right? Mm-hmm. Although she wrote that great song called Woodstock. Yes, that's a great song. So, I don't know. I, you can't replicate it. It was a great moment in history. I think, as John Lennon said... It was the largest gathering of people that wasn't meant for a war. <laughs> of course. <laughs> That's a great quote. Typical John. That's right. <laughs> but he's, he's right. I mean, there was, you know, 400,000 people. And given the sheer volume, you would think there would have been, there was, unlike the Rolling Stones concert in Altamont, where they yes. tried to replicate Woodstock, no one got killed or murdered. I mean, okay, the, the, the tragic accident, but there wasn't the same violence that there was at the Altamont concert. No, absolutely not. Now, what did you pick for the charts this week? Well, you got me thinking. You, you you mentioned Miles Davis, so I thought I'm going to do something different because we've we've seen this chart in '69. So I went with the top five jazz albums that week. Isaac Hayes. I never knew he was jazz, but number five was Isaac Hayes' "Hot Buttered Soul." I don't know a lot about Isaac Hayes, to be totally honest, but uh, I wasn't aware that he did a lot of jazz stuff either. Now the next one I know, Charlie Bird with Aquarius. Yeah, I've heard of that, of course. And and uh, what's next? <laughs> This. I can't say. I'm trying to say it without laughing. I'm trying. Sergio Mendes in Brazil '66 with "Fool on the Hill." Yeah, and you know Sergio Mendes, right, would be one of those guys that probably the uh, the snooty jazz aficionados probably look at him and turn their noses up at him, right? But but you know what? I mean, he made a lot of money doing his thing, right? And he into the '80s. I mean, he was still putting out viable music. He did that thing with uh, Gloria Estefan, which was great. Yep. Yep. Who was the uh, uh, Who was the guy that did Chiquita Banana? Do you remember that song? Uh, oh, jeez. Of was course, he? all I'm saying is Dole. Um, I can't remember. Well, he had uh, you know he had a great quote. He said, "You know, I'd rather play like Chiquita Banana and have my swimming pool than <laughs> than play stuff nobody's heard of and starve." <laughs> that's a fit, well one way of looking wrong, at it. Right? No, that's right. What was number oh, two? It's Carmen Carmen Miranda. Okay, but the, but he did a cover of that, and uh, yes, he did. Yeah, number two, Young Holt with Soulful Strut. Oh, cool! And then and number one, an album I love, Herbie Mann, Memphis Underground. Yeah, that's a great album, isn't it? Isn't it great? Yeah, I, I thought I'd look at the jazz albums as opposed to the pop albums, just because we had talked about Miles Davis, and there wasn't a jazz chart in 1959, but there was one in '69. So I thought, let's just take a look at them. You know? Yeah, very cool. Well, are you uh, ready to head back to the present, sir? And uh, maybe we'll do a little Beatles talk. Yeah, I just got to get a uh, stop smoking. No, no, just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. Okay. Yeah, I'm ready to go. Oh, okay. all right. Well, just... 
let's head back to the present. Here we go. What a great road trip this was. Uh, just a pretty momentous week in rock and roll history, and I, I thought it was cool having a little jazz talk in there today as well. Yeah, that was good. Now, of course, we always say this, the Beatles are up to something every day of the week, eight days a week, in fact. <laughs> but uh, what were the Beatles up to? Well, the last time we talked, we talked about how they their first and last show at the Cavern, which was, as we know, quite... Uh, you know, historic for the Beatles. Uh, in on uh, August the um, hmm, August seventeenth, nineteen sixty, the Beatles begin their first ever engagement at the Indra Club in Hamburg or Hamburg, Germany, West Germany at the time, playing the first of Are you ready? Forty eight nights, forty eight nights, and each night was eight hours at the club. Um, of course, the famous Max Show, Max Show, which is the, you know the Beatles are told to put on a show, mm-hmm. uh, which led to some kind of uh, bizarre behavior. At one one concert, John came out wearing a toilet seat around his uh, neck. And, yeah, um, and he would come out in his underwear sometimes. And yeah, he would even do the Nazi salute just because he thought it was funny. Oh. <laughs> uh, I, I have one recording of them in uh, Hamburg, Germany, where he actually says. Are there any Nazis in the audience tonight? It's just like, oh, John. (laughs) (laughs) But Germany made them what they were, in my opinion, because they had to play eight hours a night, Tony. So you either get very good or you quit. Well, and that's one thing that people don't realize about the Beatles is they were a good band. Like, they were tight as musicians because they spent so much time. And it wasn't just... You know, the playing eight hours a night, like they would, their schedule, I remember reading about this, right? That they would play, party for a while, uh, get some sleep, get up, rehearse, and play. Like it was so many hours spent uh, working at their craft. It's unbelievable. Well, I mean, you just, the, you look at 64 to 66 where they released two albums a year, numerous non-album singles, EPs. They did broadcasts on the BBC of, of un, un, like they didn't just play their records, they recorded. Three world tours. Uh, John wrote two books. You know, they made two movies. I mean, it's, it's a, that's a hell of a pace. Not to mention the TV stuff too, right? Well, and within such a short period of time, relatively speaking, Crazy. right? I, I, Crazy. I, I can't get over it. So that's our little Beatle moment for the day of, um, yeah, of the... Of, Start kicking off in Hamburg, Germany. Well, this was uh, excellent for a 20th road trip. I'm looking forward to number 21. And then we might be doing a a live one again in a few weeks, right? We are indeed. I'm coming your way. I'm coming to the um, Ottawa area and uh, coming to you. And uh, we're going to be doing I get to see your new studio, which I'm very excited about. Well, and it'll be a lot more built up by then. But uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. I cannot wait. But in the meantime, uh, here we are. Uh, we're pulling up at your place. Uh, have a great week, my friend. You too. Have a great, tr- safe drive, my friend. Will do. Music for today's episode of the Wayback Music Machine podcast was written by Rick Denis. The show notes, chart selection, and Spotify playlist were created by Aaron Badgley. And the artwork, recording, editing, and sound production was done by Tony Stewart. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to tell a friend or two. And don't forget to click follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast player to get the latest episodes automatically. And we'd love it if you would leave us a review. 
You can also engage with the show by going on our website and leaving us a voicemail. We may even play your voicemail on an upcoming episode. Thanks for taking this road trip with us, and we'll see you next time on the Wayback Music Machine Podcast. Hey, turn the radio up. I love this song. The Wayback Music Machine Podcast is a Stewie Tunes production. It's not just business, it's personal. And Signature Theatre's new musical, No Place to Go. When dedicated employee George discovers his company is relocating to Mars, he must decide whether to go and uproot his family's life or embark on an unknown venture. Featuring DC star Bobby Smith, No Place to Go is an irreverent and humorous musical with an enterprising twist. Now playing at Signature Theatre through October 16th. Get your tickets at sigtheatre.org.